All right, good morning, beloved. Great to be with you all uh, together again today in this great day the Lord has made. Um, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. 1 Peter, chapter 3. As I mentioned this morning, we'll be finishing up verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. I want to start by uh, reading these verses together, then after we can seek to apply each of these. So let's begin 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. This is the reading of God's living and infallible word. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless instead. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Um, now, you'll recall from last week, the key thought we're dealing with here is that uh, phrase found in verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days. And we're trying to get a handle on what it actually really means to, to live the good life, because for most people, the pursuit of the good life primarily means chasing after objects of earthly, worldly self-gratification. It, it essentially usually equates to sin, let's be honest. And uh, whether it be through the excess of money and cars, houses, or sex, the sad reality is that such things are merely um, a temporary rush, if you will, uh, shallow pleasures, material possessions that falls well short of the good life that God has called us to that truly satisfies the soul. It's a life filled with worldly pleasures which in reality are empty and shallow, destructive, and ultimately damning. It's a life focused on self rather than God. It's a life that has its moments of indulgence, but is without true fulfillment. We've all experienced it. We've all lived it. Look at the life of Solomon. Solomon, he had it all. King Solomon. He had more money, more power, more wisdom than anyone else. He had notoriety and women. He had everything today that people would say the good life must certainly contain, but was he content? Did he really love life and see good days? Listen again to Solomon's own words in Ecclesiastes 2.17. He said, so I hated life. I hated life. And isn't that incredible? The man who had it all comes to the end of his life. And as he looks back over the whole thing, 
He says he hated life because he lived it for his own indulgence. And when he comes to that great final chapter of Ecclesiastes, he gives this very pertinent advice. He says in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The good life then, the life that is full of good days, is the life that remembers God and is a life that is set on him. And Solomon finally came to that. In the end, all the money, all the notoriety, all the power, all the control, all the women, the fame, all those great works he did, everything brought him nothing but emptiness, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But in the end, he says, remember God. Remember God, who is the key to the good life. Peter then is writing about the good life. And as that phrase comes to us in verse 10, it's really a quote. Peter here is actually quoting David from Psalm 34 in the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at that throughout our time today. But what Peter is showing us here is that it's always been the pursuit of man. We all want to live the good life, but how is that accomplished? We all want it, but Peter here is going to give us the instruction and answer in this wonderful little text in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Now, it's important to remember, who is he writing to? He's writing to a group of persecuted, scattered Christians under the Roman Emperor Nero. Certainly, he's writing to a people from a human viewpoint weren't exactly living the good life. They were living under an aggressive, hostile society, under the thumb of Roman rule. They were hated. They were resented. They were being reviled for their faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 6, we saw that they had been grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, verse 12, it talks about the pagans speaking against them as evildoers. In chapter 3, verse 14, it says they suffered for the sake of righteousness. In chapter 3, verse 17, we'll see. It says it was better to suffer for doing good than what, and what is right. In chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Chapter 4, verse 13, But rejoice in so far as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Chapter 4, 16, yeah, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. And this suffering continues right through chapter 5. So, it might seem kind of strange that Peter is writing about the good life to a church is suffering greatly. That would be worldly wisdom. But by quoting Psalm 34 here, Peter is comparing their situation to the one David experienced before them. And let me just give you some uh, quick context to Psalm chapter 34. Before we begin, um, Psalm 34, I like to 
call it the taste and see that the Lord is good chapter, focuses essentially on man's suffering and man's deliverance of those who are afflicted. That's the quick summary of Psalm 34. And it reminds the reader that the Lord not only rescues his own, but he will in fact judge those who are wicked. And meanwhile, the righteous display their trust and hope in the Lord by renouncing evil and by pursuing what is good. And we see this play out in David's life as he is forced to flee Israel as King Saul jealously hunts David all across the land. In fact, some believe Psalm 34 and written as David was hiding out in the caves from Saul, where he would eventually spare Saul's life by cutting just the portion there of Saul's robe. Now think about how David must have felt. He had been chosen by God, anointed, but now he finds himself on the run, persecuted. He's been cut off from the people of God. He's been cut off from his family, cut off from the promises. Saul's trying to kill him. But David trusts in the Lord, and he tells Saul, I could have killed you. I could have killed you, but David trusts that the Lord will judge between he and Saul. And he says, may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. And what David says in Psalm 34, if you desire to love life and, and truly see good days, turn away from evil and do good, verse 14. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, and he will cut off the memory of them from the earth. And so just like David, Peter's audience, who though they were being falsely accused and hunted by their own evil king, they also must trust in the Lord. Not repaying evil for evil, not insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For to this you were called that you might inherit a blessing. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So Peter is writing to these Christians, and he says, if you really want to love life and to see good days, in spite of all this, here's what you need. And he lays out four points for us. We covered two of them last week. Let me quickly review. The first one is that you must approach life having the right attitude. The right attitude. In fact, we saw last week in Philippians 2, this isn't a suggestion, this is a command. As Paul's in line again with Peter. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. One of humility, humble in mind and in spirit. And what does that right attitude look like? Well, notice what it says in our verse 8. Peter said, all of you, have unity of mind. Again, same as, as uh, end of chapter 1 of Philippians and, and chapter 2 of Philippians. Unity of mind, sympathy for one another, brotherly love, a, a tender heart, a humble mind. This is God's calling for all of us. This is the attitude that we see in Christ. God wants his people to live in harmony because he is the God of perfect harmony, is he not? And we see this harmony most clearly in the triune Godhead, don't we? What One God, three persons. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, 
God, the Holy Spirit, always working together in perfect harmony with one another. Next, he says, not only do we need the right attitude, but you must also have the right response. We need to have the right response when we face evil, because, beloved, we're going to face evil. We're going to face it. Notice the clarity of this principle in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless instead. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So if you truly want to love life and see good days, first approach life with the right attitude where to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly in love, tender in heart and humble in spirit. And then secondly, as followers of Christ, we do not retaliate. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. When we disobey this command, we're attempting to usurp God's position. Think about that for a moment. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but lead it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You leave the, the equity matters to God. You trust God. We don't try to go get our own pound of flesh as much as we would like to. In fact, this is an Old Testament principle, is it not? If you go all the way back to Leviticus 19, 18, the Bible says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God says, don't you hold a grudge, don't you retaliate, don't you pay back, don't you avenge. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22, do not say, I will repay evil, wait for the Lord. Don't take over his own business. Wait. Proverbs 24, 29, essentially the same thought. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay that man back for what he has done. Don't say that. That's not the right response. Be like Jesus Christ. We saw those examples of Christ last week, but how about just one more of them? The end of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. You remember it. We covered it not long ago. It says in verse 23, when he, Christ, was reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But look at this. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So the right attitude is one of harmony and peace and love and sympathy. The right response is not repaying evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. And we talked about how we do that. Love, serve, pray, forgive. Very challenging. Probably some of the, the most hardest disciplines for myself, admittedly. Now, with that as our background, let's cover our final two points that we didn't get to last week. If we're to love life and see good days, then life must also be built on number three, having the right authority. Having the right authority. The right attitude, the right response, the right authority. Notice what it says in verses 10 through 11. Peter writes, For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. 
Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, this is a very important thing um, for us to know. What Peter's doing here is he is referring back to an Old Testament text. All right? To defend his teaching and to strengthen the authority on which he makes his claim. And to do so, he uses a text from Psalm 34 from the Old Testament. Now, why does he do that? Well, because Scripture is the inerrant, authoritative word of God. And by referring to Scripture, it's as if Peter is saying, look, you're living in a hostile situation. You're living in grave difficulty. You're probably wondering how life could get much worse than it is here. And I'm telling you to live harmoniously, to be sympathetic, brotherly, with kindness, never to retaliate, never to insult back, never do any of that. And you're probably saying to yourself, this can't be true. You've got to be kidding me. This doesn't seem reasonable. We ought to be able to strike back. We ought to be able to retaliate. And so to reinforce what Peter has said, he says, just in case there's some question, this comes from the word of God. And he quotes it out of Psalm 34. Now that little word at the beginning of verse 10, 4, at the beginning there, is very important. That signals the authority for what he just said in verses 8 through 9. Do this for or better because that's what scripture says. That's what scripture says to do. That's the idea here. And in verses 10 through 11, Peter quotes from Psalm 34, 12 through 14. And he, he, Peter quotes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So you'll see it's not an um, exact word-for-word quote. He summarizes just a few different words for another. But it's obvious he's quoting this exact text, Psalm 34, 12 through 14. And that's the authority that Peter is hanging his command on. This is the authority. And I do the same thing in my preaching. We do the exact same thing. We don't stand up here in front of you uh, making um, a case through my own knowledge, um, through my own opinion. I state a biblical principle, but then support that principle through God's word, his authority. It's his authority, holy scripture. We must always obey the right authority. We serve a God who has spoken, have we not? God has spoken. And if we are to be obedient to God, we have to know what has God said. Not what do I feel, not what do I think would be best. Not that we've advanced so much further in the past 2,000 years that I know better than God. And so Peter here supports even his spirit-inspired exhortation in verse 11 by quoting the end of Psalm 34, verse 13. He says, if you want to love life and see good days, you must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And that's exactly what is called for in verse 9. Keep your tongue from evil means to stop, to cease altogether. And the idea here is not to give back evil. That's why the uh, psalmist in Psalm 141 verse 3 says, 
Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. We're to make sure that at all times our tongues are under control. Chapter 3 of the book of James. You remember that particular chapter because Pastor Rick just preached on it a few weeks ago. We studied in detail chapter 3 where he talks about the tongue and how ruly the the tongue can be and how in verse 6 it can be like a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Verse 8, nobody can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. So James, Peter, David, all on the same page. Keep your tongue from speaking evil. And then in addition to refraining from uh, verbal retaliation, Notice what else it says at the end of verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. He minds them to refrain the tongue from retaliation and your lips from lying. Your lips from lying. That's what that word deceit means, to lie. We must be a people committed to the truth, shall we not? And opposed to lying, deception, hypocrisy Jesus said in Matthew 12 34 for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of so these are the things we're to eliminate if you want to love life and see good days but what are some of the positive things Um, well notice what it says in Psalm 34 verse 14 turn away from evil and do good what's Peter say in verse 11 Let him turn away from evil and do good. So there's no moral vacuum here. We are committed to doing good. And then he adds, and let him seek peace and pursue it. So altogether, he gives us four um, imperative. These are imperative commands. Okay? So let's just look at them briefly. They're um, pretty straightforward. Number one, let him turn away from evil. The verb here, to turn away, means to reject it's a um, compound verb, uh, again, which has um, an intensity about it, an intensity about it. It is a, a positive rejection of what is sinful in the treatment of others. We are to turn away from even those who persecute us. Proverbs 3, verse 7 says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. And then... The second command is on a positive note, and do good. Turn away from evil and do good. And uh, may I add the obvious here that the good life is not doing evil, (laughs) right? The good life is not like we grew up thinking sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Thought that was the good life. The good life is turning away from evil and doing what is good. The good life is not about doing whatever makes you feel good at the expense of obeying God's will. The good life is always obedient to God's authority. 
That word good is the word agathos. In the Greek, it means excellent in quality. It's the idea of being good, whether it's seen or unseen. Seen or unseen, whether someone's watching or not, whether someone can hear you or not. And then the third and fourth imperatives go together. It says, let him seek peace and pursue it. And uh, by the way, the verb translated seek and pursue both convey an intensity and aggressiveness action. In other words, let him seek peace with all of his might, with everything he can. It's like a hunter pursuing a catch, stalking his prey. That's what this term comes from. The disciple of Jesus Christ seeks peace. He pursues unity with everything in him. That's what a disciple of the Lord does. He seeks and pursues peace and unity. Now, try to imagine this. You're in a hostile world. Not too different from ours. But you're under constant daily persecution, as these men and women were. You encounter evil men trying to discredit you in every way. Um, your church has just received this letter from one of the last apostles who walked with Christ. And you open Peter's letter, believing these are the very words of God, because they are. Your church, your whole family, is dying for instruction on how to handle these oppressors. What on earth are we to do? And Peter writes, in everything you can be, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Never give back evil for evil, insult for insult. And if you really want to love life and see good days, make sure you hold your tongue from any evil retaliation, your lips from any lie that might be prone to come out of your mouth. And in the midst of persecution, turn away from all evil, do what is good, seek peace, and pursue it aggressively. Be a persistent peacemaker, pursuing unity in everything you do. This, beloved, is the calling in what they have been called to. And this has really been the constant message going all the way back, starting chapter 2, verse 11, with the call to submit, submit, submit. Wives to husbands. Employees to employers. This is what you've been called to. And, and we should be the greatest blessing any culture in any culture that we're in. We should be the greatest blessing to it. People should see followers of Christ and be so blessed that we have come into their town. Why? Because we turn away from evil and do good. And because we seek peace and pursue it. We're to be known in the world as peacemakers. The Beatitudes remind us of that, do they not? Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the what? The peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're to make peace as much as possible without compromising the truth, right? Without compromising truth, this is your calling. Let me show you this further in Scripture. Romans chapter 14, 17, it's all over. But this familiar verse talking about the kingdom of God. It says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So citizens of the kingdom should certainly be known by our fruit. Well, the first three fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace. A citizen of God 
and citizens of the kingdom, I should say, we must be peacemakers. What about, uh, back a little bit, Romans 12, verse 18, that great 12th chapter of Romans. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that's key. This is really key, right? As far as it depends on you. Well, you know, there's, there's, there's situations here. As, as much as possible that depends on you, live peaceably with all people. That's not always going to work out. As much as possible, be at peace with all men. And this is repeated all throughout Scripture. 2 Corinthians 13, that marvelous closing in verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice! Aim for restoration. Comfort one another, agreeing with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And then in that great third chapter of James, this wonderful portion of Scripture, starting in verse 13, it says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's the characteristic of spiritual wisdom from above right there. We're to first be pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. We are to pursue it. We are to hunt after it. We are to do everything possible to make peace in the congregation of God's redeemed and with the people who are around us. This applies first to our brothers and sisters in Christ. John 13, love one another as I have loved you. And as they see how well you love one another, then they, the world, will know that you are my disciples by how well you love one another as I have loved you. So the people who love life and see good days are the people who have the right attitude and make the right response, who live by the right authority, which is the word of God. And Peter uses it here to bear upon our hearts. And that brings us to the final command, our fourth one, having the right incentive. What's having the right incentive about? Notice what it says in verse 12. This is really, really great. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, this verse is once again taken out of Psalm 34. Only this time it's verses 15 and 16. And, and again, minute differences because Peter is quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. But here we're reminded of what ought to motivate us. And the answer is because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The incentive is that God is what? He's watching. Now, that has inherent in it accountability, responsibility, um, a healthy, reverent fear. God is watching. But that's not really the primary issue 
here. I mean, I could preach that, and that preaches pretty well, actually. You better get your act together. God is watching, <laughs> right? We were all seven years old hearing that sermon and went, whoa. But I don't think that's the point here. What he means by the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. What does he mean by that? It's not so much about God watching in judgment or even God watching in discipline here in the, in the first part. Rather, this phrase carries the idea of the Lord's omniscience. His omniscience. It's most often used about God's watchfulness over his people. Beloved, he's watching you as a loving father who cares for his child. He's aware of every little detail of your life, everything you're going through. And it says his ears are open to their what? Your prayer. Beloved, isn't that incredible? If you need a reminder, it's right there. He's not only watching over you, but he listens to the prayer of his children. How about you? That really encourages me. I can't read that and know that and see that and think that and believe that enough. God is watching and he cares for you. And his ears are open. This Greek word for prayer, petition, supplication, prayer, relates to the believer crying out to God to meet their needs. So again, imagine this early church. You're being persecuted. People are coming after you. Your businesses are all but boycotted and destroyed. The town people lie and slander you constantly. And you're starting to retreat. And you're crying out to God. You're petitioning him. God, help me in this. I need you. And it says the eyes of the Lord are on you. See, he already knows what's happening. He already knows because he's been watching you. And more than that, he's been right there with you because he's in you. And, child of God, his ears have been open to your prayers. So while you're being mistreated, while you're going through suffering, while you're struggling to, to give this kind of response to evil, Peter says, it's okay. You can trust in God. God is watching. He sees everything that is happening. He responds to your prayers. You see, this is the good life. The God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them is watching over you to meet your every need. Romans 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who's loved us. So what is Peter saying here? This is our incentive. This is how to love life and see good days in the confidence that the Lord is what? Watching. He's watching, beloved. And waiting to meet your every need. That's the idea here. Peter is simply saying, look, this is the life that you've been called to. You don't have to retaliate. You don't have to get your own pound of flesh. You don't have to take revenge into your own hands. You don't have to live that way. You can simply have the right attitude, a gracious, humble, sympathetic, harmonious attitude who loves his enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You can demonstrate your trust in the Lord by living under the authority of God's word with a controlled tongue and controlled lips, turning away from evil and doing good. If possible, so far as it depends on you, seek after peace and really pursue after it. The flesh wants to give itself over to anger and payback. Resist that by the power of God's spirit. God has called you to pursue peace. Peace. And you can live like this without fear because whatever difficulty you find yourself in, you don't need to be the one who gets yourself out. Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. All you need to do is to trust the Lord and know he sees everything. And you can find peace in the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. What a tremendous promise. But on the other hand, look at what the rest of verse 12 says. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The face of the Lord in this context is certainly a different phrase than the eyes of the Lord. If the eyes of the Lord speak to his omniscience, uh, watchfulness, well, then the face of the Lord, at least here in this context, would refer to his judgment. So what is our incentive then? Well, our incentive is to, is to live that the eyes of the Lord are, are on us. And as he watches over us and hears our cries and he meets our needs, the alternative is to continue on living in your rebellion, dead in your sins, blinded by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, immersed in wickedness and sin and evil, so that when God looks down on you and sees you, the face of the Lord is against you rather than for you. Being blind, you live with the wrong attitude, the wrong response, under the wrong authority, you have the wrong incentives, and by continuing to walk in disobedience to God's command, the face of the Lord will come against you. And it is a scary thing to fall into the hands of an angry God who will judge justly. But for those whose righteousness is found in Christ, they will have the right attitude that was in Christ Jesus. They'll have the right response according to right authority, the word of God, and having the right incentive. 
And as we close, I just want you to notice those verses, 13 and the start of 14, that we'll look at next week. But Peter asks a great question in conclusion. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, if the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, then who is ever going to harm you? You're on God's side. In other words, if you are zealous for what is good, God is watching over you. Have no fear. His eyes are on you. His ears are open to your prayers. And then look at what verse 7, uh, 14 says. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. <laughs> That's God's promise to you. He's working everything out for his glory. Jesus said in John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Beloved, Jesus told us, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, don't you? Then believe also in me, because I am God. Jesus told his disciples in John 16 that, that difficult, challenging, hard times were going to come upon them, that the religious leaders were going to arrest them, that they were going to be scattered and persecuted, and ultimately the hour would come when whoever kills you will think, he is offering service to God. Jesus had come into this world in order to die for our sins. And that time was quickly approaching. So in order to bring comfort to them, he reminded them the promise that's in John 16, 33. He said, I have told you these things. I have not withheld these truths from you. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In Christ there is peace. In this world, oh yeah, you will have trouble. There will be persecution. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Oh, is there a worldly system out there running evil? Oh, absolutely. Reminder, Christ has overcome it. It is finished, he said on the cross, not... I still got more to do. It is finished at the cross. And, and Jesus told us these things. So even today, 2,000 years later, that you can still have peace. In this fallen world, yes, there's going to be trouble. And, and I have a feeling we haven't seen anything yet. There's a storm brewing, and the clouds are rolling in. They're getting darker and darker every day. And, and yet, because God was rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. Jesus said, I have come that may have life and have it more abundantly. To the max, to, to the brim. David declared in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not have any wants. He makes me lie down in the green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, beloved, I encourage you today, whatever comes against us, God is with us. He is for us. So, as Peter says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if they should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Don't worry about that. You'll be blessed. The Lord will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So I close today with a simple question. When the Lord looks down at you, what does he see you with? Does he see you with the eyes of the Lord, which is on the righteous? That was option number one. Or is it the face of the Lord, which is against those who do evil? If you were unsure, I would encourage you to seek the gracious eyes of the Lord. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The time is now. See Christ at the cross of Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that Christ can be most clearly seen. The righteous for the unrighteous. Come empty-handed. There's absolutely nothing you can do to earn your way in. We are nothing but wretched sinners who deserve death. And yet Christ, who is rich in mercy, lived the perfect life that we could never live and provided for us the way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you need prayers this morning or if you have any questions concerning the gospel, we'd love to sit and talk with you or, or pray with you. If you are in need of prayer this morning, please stand as we will sing the song of invitation, God is mighty to save. Great. Great.